every one of them is memorable for me. It's never a good day to have to end someone's employment. Welcome to Affected By, a weekly podcast that explores the way COVID-19 is affecting our professional lives, how we cope, pivot, and make it work at work. I'm Tamara. And I'm Pavel. And we are live event producers who, like millions of others in our industry, have been impacted by the current pandemic. So we decided to make the most of our downtime and talk to people from different industries to find out how they are transforming their work experience, finding inspiration, and figuring out how to keep working and stay sane in the process. We are back. Hello, Pavel. Hello, friends. (laughs) Hi, Tamara. (laughs) We are back with the second part of our conversation about recruiting. And if you have not yet listened to part one, which is episode 11, don't worry, you can still dive right into this episode and then you can go back and listen to episode 11 afterwards. There's, I think, just one thing uh, that Marin said last week that I want to remind everybody of because we're going to dive deeper into that topic as well. So let's just give it a listen. I think we're going to see a world where uh, hyper-specialization of skills is going to only continue. We're noticing this with curated marketplaces as well. Um, Companies are able to, I mean, the companies that are going to succeed, I think, will become more decentralized. We have to remember that remote is a mode of work. Mm -hmm. It is not a, it's not a field. It's not like the sciences or the arts. But what we're going to notice is like the, the increased connectivity. This is going to create a lot of opportunities, but it's also going to mean that a lot of traditional industries are disrupted. And I think COVID has probably pushed those disruptions forward 10 years faster than they would have happened beforehand. Um, And now instead of competing both as companies and as professionals, instead of competing in a local market, you are in a lot of ways competing in a global market. And the only way you can compete in a global market is by becoming hyper-specialized and being, you know, the best at a very specific concentric circles. And so, yeah, the the aspect of how companies now have access to a much larger talent pool uh, as, a, as a beneficial factor is very important to keep in mind, um, as well as... Um, the idea of the hyper-focalization and hyper-focus that people will develop in terms of their their subject matter expertise and skill sets, uh, because today's panelists actually have a very different take on that. And so yeah. we will cover that as a topic, as well as um, the always-on mentality that we have in our work culture and some of the uh, more toxic work la- workplace behaviors that go hand-in-hand hand with this new work mode of working and how remote work has highlighted kind of that as a problem even more. Yes. And, um, of course, we asked our panelists to share their very best advice for job seekers. So we are always thinking about you if you're looking for a job, <laughs> as many of us are. Um So our guests this week are Carla Porter. I kind of have a broad consulting area in business, in the area of business, primarily human resources and recruitment. Uh, But with that, it kind of blurs because there's a lot of recruitment marketing. So it gets into the marketing, also customer service, sales. So it kind of, it creeps a little bit and I don't rein it in. A lot of people are really like siloed and specific, and I allow my I allow myself to be a creep. And Derek Cotton. I'm siloed and specific. I work at uh, Capital Group. We are an asset management firm headquartered in Los Angeles. I am responsible for recruiting for the sales functions, uh, and I have a team of recruiters who report to me, and I personally am responsible for executive recruiting for our private client services area. Uh, I have been in corporate recruiting for uh, about uh, 10 years, a little more than 10 years. I've been in recruiting for agencies, both global retained and smaller regional uh, contingent search firms since uh, 2004. Uh, which always shocks me when I realize it's been, you know, 16 years. Um, so just to jump right in to jump right in and back up um, to when the pandemic and, and first happened and lockdown started happening. Um, start with you, Derek. What were those immediate effects for you, you know, and your industry or your company? Capital Group's a global organization. So we have offices in Singapore, Hong Kong, um, and uh 
we understood what was coming because we had seen the effects overseas. And so for about three weeks before our local uh, safer at home uh, lockdown, first time around, uh, we were all sent home to work. And so, you know, one thing that, that I thought about was, you know, we're not going to be very long, right? Yeah, that was February. Here I am. Uh, as far as the as far as the effects on the industry, it's really accelerated some things that were already in flight. There's been some consolidation in the asset management world. Uh, larger firms are getting larger, and uh, mid-sized firms are having a hard time. Yeah, was that a big switch for you, like working from home as opposed to the office? I was a go to the office every single day guy, like every day. Like we had the ability to work from home, and I was like, why would I work from home? Uh, I have a desk. It's comfortable here. I don't have to have all my distractions. Um, and so it was a pretty big change. Um, I used to manage remote employees. So that part wasn't at all. Just for me, with the office three miles from my house, we're, we're headquartered downtown. With the office three miles from my house, it, I drop my son off at school in the morning. It takes as much time to get home as it does to go to the office. So why not go to the office? Everything's comfortable there. No distractions. But I've really enjoyed the last six months of being at home. I really have. Carla, how about you? Um, what was the what was the immediate effect for you? Well, for me, I have I have another home uh, in Mexico, and I happened to be there. I spend a, a a good part of the year there. While I had planned to be there for a little while, the airports closed, and I was there for four months. At the time, um, my twelve odd year consulting business had been kind of an off and on, sometimes sporadic, sometimes part-time, sometimes in between jobs. And sometimes I would get a client who was such a good client, I would just decide to basically move in their place and go full-time for a while. So it's, it's been, it hasn't been a lot of consistency in, in my own personal business. Uh, but at that time, I was working with a company and they, I would think that they were not going to go for me being away for four months. <clears throat> they wanted me in the office. So I've just made the decision to, uh, to leave, to resign and go completely on my own and not go back to the corporate world. So I've decided that I'm not returning to the corporate world. And I've been fortunate enough that I have enough clients that I've been declining business, right? Because I was with another organization. So I was lucky in that respect that I had the ability to work with a lot of small business owners. And that is the market that I work with, small to mid-sized businesses. They were thrown in such a state of a lot of times not really understanding uh, about the new laws about giving people leave and how they were going to manage their field employees. And with, with COVID, um, they needed guidance. A lot of the smaller businesses, they don't have in-house human resources departments. And so they were really at a loss and they needed help. And I got a lot of, a lot of LinkedIn messages and a lot of phone calls. Can you just have a conversation with me? Can you give me so many hours a month of consulting? I just, can you review documents for me? Can you help me put a plan together? So, um, it was not a difficult transition for me. I, I began to work while I was in Mexico. And when I came home, I just kept at it. And I, I am so happy. I love being home. It's actually been a really positive experience for me professionally, not necessarily personally with people ill and what's going on in, you know, around the world, but professionally, it's been good for me. Wow. Interesting. I, that's, um, interestingly, that is from, the people we've talked to, that's not actually that rare. We've heard from quite a few people that it's actually been beneficial. Um, so it, the company that you were with previously, did they experience, um, and I'm making an assumption here that being in human resources that you'd be a part of this, but did they experience a lot of layoffs right away because mm -hmm. of yes. COVID? Mm -hmm. And you were, were involved with that, I would yes. assume. Yes, mm -hmm. I was involved with that. And just on a professional and personal level, you know, uh, what is that like? I, I I mean, I know for Pavel and I, like what it was like for us being freelance and just having jobs go away. But, you know, you're having to talk to people who probably thought they were going to be at this company for a really long time. Um, and it's during such a time of uncertainty that this news is coming to them. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, a lot of the layoffs were not incredible, not permanent, not incredibly long term. So uh, the employees are fortunate that it's an industry that is a, a, a needed industry. It's an essential industry. And so a lot of those individuals uh, were able to return in not too long of a time to work. 
Uh, so that wasn't as bad, but it is never a good day to have to tell someone they're being laid off. It's never a good day to have to terminate employment for someone. I mean, at least, I don't know how Derek feels, but at least in my 20 odd years of HR experience, I mean, those are the worst days and I can count every one of them that I've had. To, I, every one of them is memorable for me. It's never a good day to have to end someone's employment. They're brutal. Even when, even when the person quote unquote deserves it, they, it's still like, they're still a person and you're, you know that you're taking their livelihood and it's hard. Like that's, I, we, we had a contractor model. So we have full-time uh, recruiters and then we have contractors um, to handle, to flex up and down as demand goes. And by, we kept our contractors for probably eight weeks, 10 weeks after we were home. And then we let them all go. And that was, uh, you know, I made all those calls. That was painful. Even though they're contractors and they know, you know, they see the writing on the wall. These people are not dumb. So they know what's out there. But still, like uh, to Carla's point, those are not good days. And even like you said, Derek, you know, even people who so-called deserved it, maybe they did something really egregious and, you know, infractions of company policy or legalities or what have you. You're not only impacting that individual, you're impacting, I mean, it's such a chain of events, their family, there's, there's economic, you know, the economics of, and dynamics of the family and um, and many unforeseen things you'll never even know about will happen once you have that conversation with, with that individual. So it's, it's always something incredibly serious. Personal. It's very personal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can see that you both take it personally, which is very heartening uh, because at least, you know, it's nice to have a human on the other side of that conversation, I would imagine. Um, so did you, did your company, besides the contractors, um, Derek, did they experience a lot of other layoffs of full-time employees or were they able to, you were mentioning, you know, that they, it's being a large company that they were able to come, come through this pretty well. None. Okay. You are the first person we've heard say that, which is something. Well, you have to remember like, uh, Again, there was already consolidation in the industry and capital groups are privately held firm that, that budgets extremely well. So we're not, we're not looking quarter to quarter. The quarter is important. I mean, when you say that, people act like, oh, well, I don't have to worry. No, but the quarter is important. But, you know, just like in your own personal life, if you have, you know, if you have, if your car breaks down in June and you got to pour two grand into it, right? That doesn't change your goals towards buying a house that you've been saving for, for the last two years. That's how we manage our personal lives, right? And so when a corporation has a bad quarter or two and suddenly all these initiatives are off because they got to impress the street, uh, that's not how any of us handle our personal lives. So I'm really quite lucky that I work for a company that is privately held and takes a longer term view towards that budget cycle, understands headcount, understands you know that our, our main asset is our people. We don't produce anything, right? We don't produce a widget or anything like that. The, the thought and the management of other people's money is our whole product. And you can't do that without the right people. So we understand that, that we have to, we have to uh, keep the people that we have. So we've been really, you know, I don't know, like I said, it's a weird time for me to be so um, fulfilled by my employment. When I look around and I know people are hurting, you know, they are right. Um, and so you have a little bit of survivor's guilt because you're like, wow, I'm not really doing too badly. I'm pretty lucky here. But uh, yeah, that really quite blessed to be working with the firm right now. Yeah, indeed. And and I think, yeah, I think that's, a, we've heard that from people. And I think I've certainly felt it. And I think Pavel has as well, where you feel lucky, but in you at the same breath, you feel bad for people who aren't, aren't having that same experience. Um, Carla, you, I want to circle back a little bit to something you mentioned um, about what you're doing now in helping these smaller companies who don't have an HR department. Um, are you, when you say you're helping them, are you helping them get set up for this remote work environment? Uh, in some instances, yes. Uh, so for whatever reason, a lot of the, it seems like a lot of my clients have core office staff, administrative staff and management and field workers. So people out in the field. So in some instances, the office, there's no more office. There, it's all been kind of disbanded. And in a in two cases, offices were dissolved. They were able to get out of their lease and they moved their office workers home 
uh, one company will has now said they will never have an office again. They will manage their entire business on a permanent basis from their homes because they were a lot of, you know, they were afraid this just has never been done before. People didn't know what to expect. They thought it couldn't be done. And so they held on to their leased space, you know, for a while. And then they realized, well, we don't really need to go back. We figured it out. And so uh, in, in those cases, uh, there has been the need to, to do some consulting on the area of managing remote workers because these companies didn't do that before. So it's more lining up, um, you know, what are the what are the regulations and the rules from the CDC, how to manage the, you know, everything to do with, with COVID and sick leave and, you know, uh, safety measures in, in those areas, PPE, personal protective equipment, uh, symptoms, people who become symptomatic and having to quarantine and people getting upset about having to not have vacation time accrued and you know, missing income and maybe not being able to return to work, people becoming ill. So they have all these questions. People never dealt with anything like this before. Yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine just this is a little a side topic, but um, since you mentioned that the health regulations, one thing that we have seen just not just here at this podcast, but everywhere we've read about it and heard family members and um, and just the culture in America is so focused on work, 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 work if you're sick, work on your vacation, just never stop working. And and the people, mm-hmm. I've talked to so many people, friends and, and others who are working a lot more now that they're working at home, whether or not they took a pay cut, they're still working more hours because they're in their house. Um, do you see that culture changing at all in the U.S.? And, and it may be different, Derek, with your um, the, the company locations outside of America or do you like do you think this this pandemic is going to positively impact that mentality so while technology prepared us to deal with this situation unfortunate situation it also has been gradually 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 eroding personal time eroding non-work time and you're like always on with unless you're a person who says I am turning off every notification on my mobile devices my and my computer, my desktop, or whatever. Um, I and I have and I am setting myself up to be that eight to four thirty or nine to five person Monday through Friday, and I refuse to look at any of it afterwards. I mean, I think that that's even becoming unacceptable because I can tell you that there are people who, if you don't reply in in an employment situation, if you don't reply after hours, they they start to hound you. It's it's annoying. So boundaries have been challenged to a significant degree. Personal boundaries have been challenged to a significant degree to, to include not only late hours, but weekends. And that is difficult for families. That is difficult for mental health. That is difficult for, you know, you need to restore, right? Um, everyone does. And so in some ways, you know, there's, there's that we're not completely adjusted yet. This is also new. We are not completely adjusted yet. There have the parameters have not been set uh, in an established way yet about the rules of the new rules of work for those who have to work from home. We're battling we're battling culture though, like that that American culture, um, and I don't I I just our system is set up so that all of us are imminently replaceable. Yeah. Right, and all of us know that, like unfortunately, and so. When you're faced with the fact that your healthcare is tied to your job, uh, your mortgage is tied to your job, everything is tied to this job, like you're probably going to put in the more and more hours because you don't want to be seen as the one who's slacking, especially when they don't get to see you every day and you have to work from home. I just feel like, like I don't think anything's going to change there, but I will say people seem to be working differently and there does seem to be an ex- acceptance of people are working differently. So. Like I work till like four every day and then that's it. Like four, four fifteen, and that's it. I go, I hang out with my son, I ride my bike or I go for a walk or whatever, right? Then I come home, six o'clock, it's dinner time. I make dinner, do the dishes. And then it is eight or nine and I'll log back on for a couple hours. And that is, you know, that, you know, I might log in the office. I might take the laptop down to the couch while I'm watching TV just to kind of clean up and catch up and make sure what I missed in that last hour, any any urgent emails I have to reply to or something like that. Um, and that's, I think people are working differently because of this, but I think the, the overall volume of work, like you know, Americans until we 
until we stop believing that six weeks of vacation makes the Germans lazy, we're <laughs> going to get this. Sorry, I have to laugh because Pavel is German <laughs> and is not. No, I, and what's, what's hilarious about that is that German people in general seem to be quite efficient. Yeah. And I would never characterize them as lazy, certainly. And pretty darn I'm, happy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, so do you have that see-through into um, other offices at your company specifically uh, where you see the different cultures you know, like it's very different in Asia. They they may have a strong work ethic, but they still take more time off, I think, than we do. That's interesting. I've never thought about our, our international offices, right? Like because we're American and we just you head down and you grind right. through it, right? And I know these things because I like I have a ton of international friends. I have uh, I have friends like literally all over the world. I I'm in my uh, my alter identity. I was uh, involved with. Uh, the sport of fencing, the Olympic sport of fencing. So you, so you don't see it in your business life, but you're saying in your personal life, you can see the the difference in work ethic. I personally can, right? But you know, maybe I'm older and I got some other things going on, right? And I had the discipline to come home and do some work when I'm off. But I'm not going to be married to my phone and check chasing the notifications. But at the same time, right? You know, I've never taken two weeks off, three weeks off of work. Are you crazy? I'll take like seven days right? and then come back and then take another seven days, two months later, I'll take three or four weeks cumulatively throughout the year. But the thought of taking a block of two and a half, three weeks, I'm like, what are you mad? Sure. <laughs> okay. So, so COVID is not solving that particular American issue. <laughs> it doesn't sound like, I mean, I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, the quote unquote potential new workplace of the future. Um, are you seeing, um, Derek, in the future, a hybridization of the workplace um, where it's going to be totally acceptable to work at home or in the office or both? Even, I, I get that it is in your company, but do you see that as something changing, you know, overall? I mean, in my personal opinion, mm-hmm. not really, because good or bad humans are social creatures, I believe. And so if you're not in that office, you are a voice on the phone or a picture on Zoom. And there's a difference in the relationship that if I walk down the hall and Tamara's there every day and we talk and Carla's on the phone and Carla's great, she's a subject matter expert, but I need somebody to work on a project that really could be career changer. I'm probably going to walk over to Tamara, right? Because I know her. I see her. She's tangible to me. And I think those kind of growth opportunities are going to, I think we're going to have a have and have not. I believe the people that are purely remote are going to be subject matter experts and they might be a little career limiting. And the people who are in the office are going to be the ones who are driving. Um, And again, this is my personal opinion, but, you know, every time a company talks about their culture, they're not talking about the people who aren't there. Right. And so the big question is going to be for remote employees, are you going to fully adopt the culture? Are you going to feel like you're truly a part of this firm or are you a free agent open to other offers almost at any time? Um, and that's, I just believe that the people who are there are still going to be the one, the high pose, the people who are for promotions that get them faster, sooner um, than the people who are remote. Yeah. Interesting. So Carla, I want to ask the same question to you because you have seen smaller companies who have gotten rid of their offices and are, are purely remote. Um, so do you think that they're just going to stay there. I think you mentioned that they may still stay that way. Do you see other companies mm-hmm. that may do like a mix? And who would be driving that? Is that something driven top down or is that an HR recruiting responsibility? Wow, that's a that's a big, really big question uh, or everything that you just asked me. <laughs> yeah, um, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Much of this is in, is driven by industry, right? Which What industry is it? There are certain industries that will never be able to do that because they're service oriented or they're service providers. And so they have to have local people because they work in a specific geographic region and they provide, you know, um, services to their local customers and clients. Yet within that, I mean, even if you take a look at an industry like retail, which is local, I'm talking about bricks and mortar retail, right? So obviously it's mostly local people that go there. But yet the, the people who are not on the sales floor, many of them can be remote and I'm seeing it happen. So 
I'm seeing where all of a sudden companies do not feel boxed in by local talent. They feel that maybe their marketing person or their whole marketing team, they can, they can get exactly what they're looking for or they never would have put out a national job ad before. It would have only ever been local, but they can put a national one out now. And they can, they have an, this exponentially ridiculously huge pool that they can entertain uh, to get exactly what they're looking for, exactly at the price they're looking for. So for example, companies that are in, for example, where you guys are, companies that are in larger metro markets that would typically have higher salaries than where I am in smaller markets uh, where salaries are not as large may decide and they're, the people here are just as talented as, as they are anywhere else. I meet incredibly talented people or are used to at networking events, right? Now they're virtual networking events, but uh, you know, usually salaries are lower here. Was uh, Well, now maybe someone in a large city, a company can save some money by hiring a person in a smaller area. And this is going on. I'm not an advocate. I'm not advocating for it. I'm not advocating for looking for someone that you have to pay less, that you can pay less money to. I'm just saying that it ha- it's happening and it, it is something that we have to look at and deal with. Yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a very, very good point. And the way you put that, if they can save money, if they're not going to be in an office anyway, and they can save money by hiring someone in Iowa and pay them a lot less because their mortgages aren't as high in Iowa as they are in California or New York, then that makes financial sense. That's correct. And you don't look at sales today. Right. There are a a lot of sales that are not face-to-face in person, walk, knock on the door, walk in half or, you know, have to be that way. They're adaptable, flexible. And um, so you can arm your dream team from anywhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and Derek, it doesn't sound like that's something that you see happening in your industry and certainly not in your company specifically that they wouldn't necessarily go. No, we, we, we recruit nationally. Now the question is, can that person stay in Iowa or are we going to expect them to move sooner or later? My point isn't like, can you, the question that I ask is that person in Iowa, right? The person that, you know, our salary grade in Los Angeles says the job's a hundred grand. We're going to pay 80 grand in Iowa because of the cost of living and everything else. That's great. But the person in Iowa, are they going to have the same opportunities as the person who's in the exact same job, who's rubbing elbows with their boss in the office day in, day out? My instinct says no. What I've seen to date says no. And that's not just from here. It's from other companies, farmers, insurance, et cetera. Uh, Maybe over time, I'll be proven incorrect. But I do know that Facebook and Google uh, really pressed to get people back in the office because they were talking about culture. Yeah. And they felt like they were losing their culture with the diverse, with, with a displaced workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But they're not, they're not bringing people back in until next year at the earliest. No, yeah. I'm not. Right. But I'm saying like <clears throat> two years ago when yeah. they could work any place and they were like, you know what, I don't know if this is working. So they started, yeah. you know, Google found that the collaboration, the face-to-face collaboration was almost irreplaceable. You know, I've heard of Google measuring the time that you have to stand in line to wait for your food at the, at their, at their cafe. Uh, because they find if it's too short, people grab and go. But if it's too long, people won't stay. So there's a certain amount of time that people will wait in line. And while they're in that line, they end up talking to other people. And they found that even that social interaction uh, generates ideas. And so, you know, I, I think the technology is here to allow us to compete and to, to hire people from, from any place, right? The question is, well, to me, will that person have the career? Will that person be seen as a leader yeah. So what I'm hearing from that is it may be good for the company, but is it good for the job seeker? Is it good for the employee? Right. And we think maybe not. So on that same note, do you um, do you have any advice for job seekers in this current mo- uh, market, like how they can stand out, whether or not it's decentralized? So in Carla's case, she may have an answer there, but if for your case they would most likely be either moving to the market or maybe starting where they are and eventually moving. Um, Do you have any advice for how they can stand out now with everything being as it is very tight and a lot of people out of work? I'm probably going to say something that will, that people will take a little umbrage with, but 
it's shocking how bad people are at this. People submit resumes for a job. Let's just say, I'm just going to pull names out. I need a financial analyst and they'll submit a resume with the top line saying, my goal is to be a product manager. Okay. Well, I know you that you don't want this job, right? You're going to settle for this job. Um, people like I make presentations in classrooms to recent to, to rising. Well, actually people who are going to graduate in May, I'll make a presentation and I'll write my, my, my email address and my LinkedIn handle on the board. And I'll say, connect with me and see what we can do. Now I'm a recruiter at a firm. So I'm in charge of hiring. You would think if there were 40 people in the room that I would get 40 requests to connect on LinkedIn. Can I guess how many? Go right ahead. Zero to two. No, I get more than that. There's always, okay. there's always four <laughs> to six. There's always four to six. I'm such a pessimist. That are go-getters. Now, by the way, if I don't challenge them and say, I'm going to write this up here and none of you are going to take advantage of it, two to four. Wow. Right? But but if, if I challenge them, I might get as many as eight. And so what I find is people are ill-prepared. So they get an interview, they come in, they're not prepared. They're just literally not prepared. They couldn't, like, uh, you know, they're, they're in this virtual environment. You think you could clean up your background a little bit. Maybe you wouldn't be wearing sweats. Maybe you wouldn't be wearing whatever because you'd want to make, it's like they don't believe and you get one chance to make a first impression. And so it's shockingly bad. And then the, the few people that do some research on your firm, that maybe looked at your LinkedIn profile before you chatted with them, um, that actually have the right job on their resume, have no typos on their resume, oh, yeah. by the yes, way, thank you. while claiming they've got great attention to detail. Oh, that, that's um, in, you're speaking our language. <laughs> the people who submit resumes without contact information on it. Yes. Okay. So when you get to that, the five to six people who actually come out and do well. They're like a breath of fresh air. You're like, wow, great. I can't wait to move you forward in the process. So people are shockingly not good at this. Um, and we haven't even talked about the interview. We're just talking about getting past the gatekeeper me and what they could do to, to maximize their chances. Instead of submitting a hundred resumes today for a hundred jobs, take your time and custom craft 10 resumes for 10 jobs, right? Take your time and custom, look at the job description. It says you need to know Excel. You need to be a good communicator. You need to know, you know, you need to have made public presentations. Those are the first three bullet points. So I would argue if you have those things, the first three bullet points under your job should be heavy usage of Excel. I make regular presentations to the management committee and I collaborate with, with, with cross-functional teams. Like, but people don't take that time. So they submit the same resume to a hundred different jobs, kind of hoping and they really could if they took just, they took a half hour, they'd have a far better chance that when I click on the resume and I look at it, I say, oh, look, this person has Excel. Oh, look, they, they make presentations. Oh, look, they collaborate with cross-functional teams. I'm going to move this person forward to the phone screen. Same person. They just took a little time to readjust the bullets and make it stand out to me. I mean, that's that's what I see. Yeah, that's, gr- that's great advice. And the, the bullets is a great, that's a great, um, that's a great, very tangible piece of advice. Um, that I hadn't actually thought of. Uh, Carla, I saw you nodding along there. Um, so I'm imagining you're seeing some of the th- same things. Um, what's your advice um, for how to stand out and, and maybe focus a little more on how do you stand out in a decentralized workforce where maybe that person is in Iowa, but they're applying for a job in New York? I, I can't disagree with anything that Derek said. Uh, you know, we who work in this field and know all the best practices and the right things to do do it. We would do it for ourselves, and we would encourage others to do it and teach and do teach others to do it. Derek goes out and speaks. I go out to universities and, and, and do presentations and so forth to groups. And, but people are not, are not born knowing how to do that. It's not, it doesn't come natural to people. And a lot of those uh, first year courses that are requirements to take in the university that teach you about how to build your resume and how to go in and how to do LinkedIn and how to, you know, be professional and not have drinking photos on your Facebook and, you know, all those classes, right? The, that content, you know, when, when four or six or eight years go by, uh, first of all, the, the game has changed a little bit because now there's a new social network. Now it's a little bit different. Now you're not putting, you know, it's no longer popular to put an objective at the top of your resume, take that off. You know, now you've got to load it up with keywords, you know, so it keeps changing, and a lot of that is due to technology and applicant tracking systems and what recruiters need at the moment. So some things have changed, right? 
So I'm a, I'm a little more laid back and want to hear people's stories. So what I always suggest for advice is to apply, what I call apply through the front door, but network through the back door. So you're going to go ahead and use that formal, however the company wants you to apply. Is, is it on their website? Is it on Indeed? Is it on a job board? You know, where is it, right? But then I think that you should use your LinkedIn connections. I'm a huge fan of LinkedIn. I'm a huge user of LinkedIn. And find people who work in that company, but actually before you apply, and try to make some connection, try to find out and see who works there, see what the culture is like, see what kind of a fit you think you might be, if it if it's for you, if it potentially is for you, and try to meet someone that works in the company. Try to have someone walk your resume into the HR office. So you may apply, you may go through the official application process, their job board on their website, but you may also have someone you can email it to and and have them walk it in. When it lands on the top of the pile on the front of on the top of the recruiter's desk, they look at it. That's just the way that it is. So, uh, so that is my big advice: is to go ahead and apply the way you're supposed to apply, but then also do some background work and go through the back door, back channels, uh, which is typically networking. Try to find someone within the company, having done some research on the company and knowing something. You know, go ahead and contact someone with a direct message and say, "Hey, I'm interested because of A, B, and C." And could you talk to me for five minutes about it? Uh, do you think, and then based on building that, hopefully somewhat of a relationship that you're building there, hopefully that they're able to lend a hand by by walking your resume into a hiring manager, into a recruiter, into the HR person, what, you know, whatever. Yeah. That's my advice. Very good. Um, do you, you mentioned Facebook and LinkedIn and that you use it and you look at it. So I assume you look at those social networks when you're going through applicants. I do. Interesting. How about you? Do you, Derek, do you look at those? Do you look at LinkedIn? Do you look at Facebook? I look at, I look at LinkedIn all the time. I mean, I get your resume. I cross-reference LinkedIn almost immediately. Um, and it depends on, you know, what I find. And maybe I'll take a look at Facebook. Um, but typically, I just, I stick to LinkedIn. I, t- I stick to that social platform. It's just, um, I try to like let back, like I'm not friends with any of my employees, for example, on Facebook, right? <laughs> I don't want to see what's going on. I don't want them to see what's going on here. Let's have that little firewall there. And, uh, but there are times I'll, I'll have to look at, at Facebook. Like, uh, if your email address is like rummy boy, or I drink a lot on, I drink, I day drink, or I drink a lot on the weekends or, you know, blunt boy, blunt boy 47 at Gmail. Right. I might have to take a look at your uh, Facebook, but you'd be surprised. Like these are not, these are real, uh, email addresses I'm giving you. These are not like I just made these up. Blunt boy 46. It's, it's a real it's a real email address that's on people's resume. I don't there's oh, sexy hot there's sexy hot pants at hotmail.com too. You know, hotmail. I mean it, <laughs> I'm more offended by that. So I mean it's that it's that it's that kind of thing that drives you to take a look to make sure because I think what people forget and this is and and, and I would like to make this point when 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 somebody refers you or when when you ask somebody to intercede on your behalf it's their good name you're putting at risk right so if i say hey carla do you know xyz at this firm you're working with and they say and carla says yes and i go in there and i crap the bed and i'm an embarrassment they're not going to say wow derek was terrible carla who else you got they're going to say carla what were you thinking do you know this person and then carla comes up with somebody else, they come up with Tamara and they're like, hey, Tamara's great. And they're like, hmm, really, Carla? Because you referred Derek last time and we still haven't gotten the taste out of our mouth. And so it really hurts the ability of that person. It hurts that person's credibility going forward and it takes so long to rebuild it. So, you know, I, I just, I can't stress that enough that if you're going to go out there and ask somebody to intercede for you, you have to show up like a dream. And even if you don't get the job, they have to look and say like, well, you know what, Carly, you know, Derek wasn't right for the job, but I, you know, I like that guy. He was okay. He just wasn't right for this job. Right. And then Carla, Carla remains her, retains her standing and, and, and her reputation for understanding what good looks like. Um, Derek didn't embarrass himself. They just said I wasn't right for this job. Um, it's just so important. And I can't stress that enough. It really is. You know, actually the first place that I go to before LinkedIn or social media is just Google. I like to Google a name and, uh, you know, try to identify them by their their location or their profession or whatever information I have about them and kind of find out and see, you know, what do they write about? If they have a website, if they have a blog, what are their their professional, you know, do they write about their pro- professional pursuits? Does it really 
mirror what they're putting on that resume. So, I mean, it depends. You don't do it at first glance. The minute you get a resume, you don't check social media. You don't, you have to be interested in the candidate to want to delve, dig further, right? Because you're giving just a, a little bit of, uh, you know, you're, it's a glance over or it's a, oh, I want to read this more or it's, oh, this is really interesting. You know, it just depends on the, on the layer. Um, but if you're going to look, I do look at Google first. That's, that's really a great reminder from both of you. And I uh, really appreciate it um, that, that employers are looking at social media. They are looking at your web presence and you are a brand. So I think that that's such a great reminder for, for all of us whether it's a young person who posts their entire life on Instagram or an older person who um, just doesn't realize how, how important that is. Quickly, since you brought it up, um, Derek, and this is a little bit of my personal question because I um, am very careful about who I recommend for jobs for the very reason you described. Um, do you have any advice for people who are asked to make rec- recommendations that they don't feel comfortable making? Oof. I mean, that's a tough one, right? That's a tough one. Like, right? It's a, re- it's a like, tough one. Yeah. <laughs> first, it, it, like it depends on how uncomfortable you are, right? I think there are layers to that. The first level would be, I don't really know you. And so you might refer that you might send that person along saying, look, I don't, I don't really know this person, but they did take the extra step of reaching out to me. Please do what you will, right? And you forward it along to the manager, the other recruiter, and you say, because the, the mere fact of reaching out, like let's say they reach out to you, like Carla suggested, um, via LinkedIn, that's that shows some initiative, right? That that you'd be surprised how few people do. You'd be shocked. Um, well, maybe not you, Tamara, since you said zero to two people earlier. So, um, but uh, and then if you really don't feel strongly about somebody, I think you got a couple of things. Can you make an introduction for me? Oh, you know what? No, I can't because I don't think this job isn't right for you, right? Oh, well, why, why not? I think I'm great for it. No, no, I've, I've talked to the hiring manager and given what you're doing to your background. It's not, it's not right for you without having to say, you know, you're a hot mess or something along those lines, right? right? But still direct. It's still very direct. Yeah, that's the only way. I mean, that's, yeah. or you can just, you know, I, I prefer not going with the straight up lie of, hey, we've already identified an internal for the job, you know, um, or, you know, we're, in, we're already in final interviews, but you just posted it yesterday. <laughs> So it's usually it's usually better to go with that right there. Um, how about you, Carla? Any different different advice or other ideas of what you can say? I would go straight up with the honesty. This person contacted me through whatever network and asked if I would be able to walk the resume in. Here, here it is. Do what you will with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's fair. That's fair. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to wrap up with um, a, a big topic. Certainly now, um, and we would wish it would be a big topic more often, um, but is in your role as recruiters and HR, human resources, how do you see um, inclusivity in the workplace, whether that's race or gender or people with disabilities? Um, Is that something, uh, we'll start with you, Derek, that you look for or that you're like, or that your company's policies look for? Do you see it changing at all? So I'm always shocked at the, I just don't see a lot of people with physical disabilities in our offices. And, uh, you know, that's one of those things where you have no way to screen against it until they walk, quote unquote, into your office. And I always think about it because we have such a, we've, we've, uh, I mean, the ADA, I mean, all of our hallways and everything else are designed to accommodate that. Mm-hmm. But I just don't see them, which is inter- which I find interesting. As far as the underrepresented minorities and, and gender, uh, uh, the gender representation, it's a focus of my firm. And I'm proud to say it was a focus three years ago. So the actions of the summer have not, uh, they've intensified it, right? But um, it was a focus when I joined three years ago. And you always, I personally believe you can always tell when a firm is serious about it because they, they spend money at it. And so we had a, we spent significant money with a consulting firm to show us where our flat where our flat areas were and our blind spots. And we worked pretty actively to address them, had some pretty serious unconscious bias training. Uh, and in my first session to talk about a slate of candidates, one of the hiring managers in the room, non-diverse, right? started saying, oh, you know, that might be my similarity bias. And I looked over and I was like, I can't believe this guy just said that straight out of the training. And so I knew that they took it seriously. 
And we got, you know, we're in financial services, so we got miles to go, right? I mean, probably only tech is is uh, is less diverse than the financial services industry. So we've got, you know, and it's not capital group, it's the whole industry. So we've got, we've got a lot to do to catch up. Um, but I can probably say that at my firm, we were actually trying to do it. Um, and you know, it's not easy, but we're, we're trying to do it. And we're, we're actively involved with, with, uh, different groups. We have very robust, uh, employee research groups. Other people call them affinity groups. We call them communities. Uh, but we have, those are very strong, uh, and they're listened to. So a lot of their initiatives are bubbling up to leadership and leadership is saying, yes, we'll invest in that. Uh, and so what's happened since the summer is we've been hyper focused on it. Um, but that was not reactionary. We were already focused on it. And so that, I think that's pretty cool. I'm pretty happy with my firm for that. That's, that's heartening to hear. Carla, how about you? Since it's a you have a little bit of a different position because you're on the outside. What do you see in the, in the companies that you work with? Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, difference, not only because I'm on the outside, I am in a more, a less urban, more rural type of a setting. I am, am in a less diverse uh, area geographically, regionally. And most of my clients are uh, probably within a 75 mile. I have one that's in Pittsburgh, which is a, a you know obviously a large city. But I think what I see is because I'm working with small employers, you don't find like they, they don't have enough employees really to do like a lot of affinity groups and things like that. So it's not the same dynamic as a large corporation and they don't have the same types of resources. So a lot of it is training. A lot of it is training, you know, non-biased training, interview, tra- behavioral interview training. Like Derek said, he doesn't see a lot of people with disabilities in the company. A lot, Of course, a lot of disabilities are invisible disabilities as well. They're not necessarily visible physical disabilities. So I would say that the, your company probably does have a lot of people with disabilities, uh, but perhaps not the not physically challenging um, disabilities. Great point. Thank you. I find that the employers that I am working with, they are very interested in certain, uh, in recruitment of certain demographics of individuals. And when we brought in our view of what is diversity, and we look at the veteran community, for example, we look at um, hiring uh, more gender equality in the workforce, more egalitarianism in that area, uh, ageism, not trying to knock out ageism, right? And hiring older workers. That's also another type of uh, a diverse population. So I find there's more openness, at least here where I am, toward the older worker, toward the veteran, toward um, women. And we have much more work to do in the other areas of diversity. So we have more work to do here as I'm sure everywhere has more work to do, but in the areas of racial diversity and being open to having people in your workplace. I mean, I live I'm living in an area here where it's um, there's a lot of, you know, English only in the workplace that, you know, that's what the employers want. They don't want other languages, you know, maybe spoken. So there's a lot of culture. You're knocking up against other cultures. And there they, there's like not as good of understanding of other cultures because there's not as much being exposed to it here. Uh, and so it, it is a great, it is a great challenge. It is um, something that you cannot have enough education about. And I try whenever I can to ensure that my clients uh, are exposed to the the types of training and education and, and hopefully they opt into that. I always recommend it. I would love to push back on that English only thing and say, so, so you don't want any native German speakers, right? And just see what they say to that, because I can almost guarantee you, they're going to be like, Oh, well, uh, well, you know, I guess, you know, they speak German. I guess we could see them, right? It could fly, right? Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, but, you know, there's all this code we woven into the what we say. It's, yeah, it's heartbreaking at some point, right? Uh, because it's, you, when you get down to the granular level, you realize the hill that we have to climb. And it's not, you know, I've had the, the benefit of traveling the world and, you can look at it as we are not making any progress. We're not making any inroads, but we're one of the few countries that actually has to deal with it. You know, you go to a lot of these countries, you go to Korea, 
they don't have to talk about diversity in Korea, right? I mean, it's just not an issue. They don't talk about like, we don't want any English spoken in the workplace. It's not an issue there. And we have that, you know, you, we have the issue. So, you know, being here in Los Angeles, I mean, we have, we have mosques that are next to synagogues that are down the street from churches. We have, you know, you land at LAX, there must be 50, 60 languages being spoken there. There's a little Bangladesh three miles from my house. Like, I don't think people even know where Bangladesh is, but we got a little Bangladesh here in Los Angeles. And, you know, like we make it work somehow, right. like somehow we make it work. We're not at each other's throats every day. And so that gives me some, that, that gets me more on the positive side to say, it's not all gloom and doom, but we still got a lot of ways to go. We got a long way to go. Yeah. I think, um, I think a lot of industries, if not every single industry has a long way to go. <laughs> I know that ours does. Um, so, so thank you for that. And, um, I think, I don't know, it just takes people to continue pushing and educating and moving that idea forward very, very, very quickly. One positive that has come out of this, um, for you, even though it's a horrible situation, but a personal or business positive that's come out of COVID or staying at home for you, Derek? Well, I'm working out more, lost weight. It's great. <laughs> I'm the I'm the opposite of everybody else, I guess. Um, you know, it's good. And uh, now I am a, officially a hiker. Like uh, we've been doing a lot of things to get, you know, try to maintain some social distance, right? Um, which is not always easy in the heart of Los Angeles. And uh, my son and I have always hiked a little bit. And I guess we've been hiking a lot um, over the years, but now it's like the only activity that we really have. They took down the basketball courts and everything else. So now the only thing we can do to be distant is get the heck out. And so we go up into Angeles National Forest deep. We're like an hour into it. And so we've now started doing this, uh, the six pack of peaks, which is uh, climbing six of the highest peaks in Southern California. And so we've done, we did it. We did it. We did Mount Baldy. We did uh, Cucamonga, Ontario Peak. Um, just down the list, we've done them. So next up is probably going to be half dome, half dome for us next spring once the snow melts. And so, you know, that's uh, the positive that's come out of this. And also really like I'm enjoying, I'm, well, first of all, I'm spoiled. I'm an only child. My wife's an only child. We have one child and we have two grandmothers so that within three miles of us. And so we have a lot of help. And so my son is downstairs with my mother-in-law in school. My wife is upstairs at work. I'm in the middle level at work, but I've really enjoyed spending the time and, and we have lunch every day together. We had a great vacation where we just hit the road and we drove up to Yellowstone and just did all of all the parks on the way and you know, 13 days on the road. And it was great. And so, you know, I'm telling you like, uh, I feel a little bit guilty, but it's not bad for me. You know, like this, this whole this whole time has not been bad for me. Good. That's nice to hear silver linings. Um, how about you, Carla? What's one positive? There are so many. Uh, I guess the the first and foremost would be that the pandemic provided me with the push that I needed to really strike out on my own uh, permanently and full time, uh, which has led to an incredible improvement in work-life balance for me and the ability to provide elder care when I need to and the ability for me to live internationally when I want to and it's just it definitely has changed my life professionally for the better great that is that is great to hear and um and so we'll wrap up on the positive. I like to end on a positive note. Um, we, we like to. So thank you so much, both of you, for sharing your, your insights. Um, it's been really, really fascinating and helpful. Glad to do it. It was, it was great. It was a great conversation. Very engaging. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. So that was really interesting to, to have this week's conversation really focus on two very different sized uh, companies and enterprises and also kind of like split East Coast and West Coast. And I think we got, we, we covered a lot of ground. So I'm really interested in hearing some of your takeaways. Yeah. And big city, big city, exactly. small city. Yeah, yeah true. Um, yeah. I think one of the biggest takeaways for me was the contrast between Derek's view um, that being a remote worker could be potentially career limiting, mm -hmm. um, especially if your company culture is very centered around collaboration. And then, you know, that was very different from Carla's, Carla's observation that 
some of the companies she's working with have actually realized that they don't need a physical space. They figured it out. And certainly Marin, Marin Kate from episode 11, um, she just simply uh, views remote work as a mode of work and it doesn't help or hinder one's mm. career trajectory. So, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer, obviously. Um, I think there's probably some truth there, you know, from everybody. Uh, maybe it does affect some people. Um, but it seems to be uh, the way of the world, the way we're moving generally. Um, I mean, I think Derek's um, concern was specifically with the company culture, uh, how how that is going to be how that is going to be realized moving forward, and and then we you you were actually asking him about you know the company or, or just American work culture at large, and he was already admitting that while he works for a globalized company that had actually allowed him to give like a little glimpse into what the future would hold because all the other countries were going into lockdown first before us mm-hmm. uh, at the same time he's very much head down and things from the american perspective so so already we're seeing in globalized companies while there is a high virtuality between teams and local local headquarters because everybody's even though they're part of the same company they still view themselves as separate entities and yeah. now that even local offices, people that have traditionally and historically worked together, find themselves in just as much of a virtual space. I would actually contend that there's a bigger chance for a more unifying company culture because everybody finds them sa- themselves in the same boat. Like, like both the the Japan office and the the I don't know Brazil office, they're in the same situation. We're all remote. We're all virtual. So I'm I'm hopeful that we're actually opening ourselves up to a more globalized company culture um because there is no geographic boundary anymore yeah yeah that's interesting and um i mean it's been happening for some time Mm -hmm. and and more and more industries have been moving toward that model um and you know I, i think companies are trying to help workers and help people feel connected and have relationships mm-hmm. by using tools like slack or google chat right. so that people can stay in touch and not just talk about work but talk about, you know, Slack channels typically have, you know, music or random ideas or stuff like that to keep conversations going in to sort of substitute for that water cooler conversation. And I also remember working in a large office with a lot of people, but our Mm -hmm. primary mode of communication used to be Slack for one reason or another. So just because (laughs) we were sharing the same space, we weren't necessarily... um, more connected physically but i wouldn't even say that we weren't connected you know so it's just i guess it could also possibly be a generational thing and to Mm -hmm. me this is one of the main things and i should disclose that uh prior to doing this interview i actually talked to a friend of mine who was a business coach and she had asked me to kind of ask that question like who will be the the driver of this process at these companies and you asked that question uh and and we didn't get a really clear answer uh and so i i want to thank my friend for bringing this up because clearly this is a topic that needs more discussion yes uh it might just not be clear in companies who's responsible for driving that change whether it is you know the human resources department whether it is the department heads like there's so much more to be talked about and so much uncertainty so um yeah i think that that was a great opportunity to touch on something that is not yet fully explored (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we will keep asking that question and and see where we get. Um, We also talked um, about inclusivity and diversity Mm -hmm. a bit. Uh, And I just wanted to mention um, that we will be doing a deeper dive on this topic in an upcoming episode. So please look for that. Um, It's a big topic and it's a topic that I hope we keep talking about continuously. Exactly. Um, And one thing that I wanted to point out from from that part of your interview, what I found really interesting is the reminder about uh, uh, invisible disabilities. That's um, I think that's something that we're we I think we could be a lot more mindful of that in the workplace just in general. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, this was a a really good discussion. And I think um, I hope hope you guys enjoyed the discussion. We'd love to hear what you thought about it. If you have additional insights, um, please uh, email us at affectedbypod at gmail and follow us on social media 
at Instagram and Twitter at Affected by Pod. And we it wouldn't be an episode if we did not ask you to please, please, please <laughs> rate, review, uh, subscribe, tell a friend, tell 10 friends, tell your family. It really, really helps. Well, with that being said, thanks for listening and tune in next week. See you later. Bye. Bye.